Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, two men who caused the destruction of Jerusalem. The story tells the events surrounding the Great Jewish Revolt, one of many in the 60s AC as they appear in the Talmud. The temple was destroyed, Jerusalem burned, and only few were allowed to escape and continue their tradition elsewhere. The story comes from a Talmudic volume on divorce. And indeed, this was a divorce between Jews and Romans, or was it Jews not getting along among themselves? Was it Jews as a nation divorcing from their political powers, or from their God breaking the ages-old covenant? What is interesting about the Talmud is that this is an oral tradition that is meant not only to be retold, but also studied, commented, and debated. The main events are here. The commentaries are here. Does it remind you of something? Some people like to draw the parallel between the page layout and hypertext. But all of this is not just additional information, footnotes, or links. These are differences in opinions, and the text more than it is trying to prove a point, it raises questions and opens controversies. In the show program that you are about to see, we try to rework this idea of a story to be told and debated into a modern performance using multiple media, the internet, and some specially developed technology to encourage public participation. Using their laptops, during the show, people can chat, browse, and share information as the story goes on. This is not going to be a Hollywood epic or a heartbreaking rendering of the destruction drama. It also is not the adversarial debate where one side is proven right or wrong. So what is it all about? There was an important banquet held in ancient Jerusalem attended by rabbis and other dignitaries to which a man called Kamsa never showed up. It was the servant's fault for bringing the wrong man, Bar Kamsa. We don't know much about him except that he probably was not liked by the community so when Barkamza gets kicked out, the rabbis do not intervene. Welcome to Kamza and Barkamza. A certain man had a friend, Kamza, and an enemy, Bar Kamza. He once prepared a party and said to his servant, Go and bring Kamza. The man went and brought Bar Kamza.
seen you tell tales about me. What are you doing here? Get out. Since I am here, let me stay. And I will pay you for whatever I eat and drink. I won't. Then let me give you half the cost of the party. No. Then let me pay for the whole party. No. Since the rabbis were sitting there and did not stop him, this shows that they agree with him. I will go and inform against them to the government. He went and said to the emperor, The Jews are rebelling against you. How can I tell? Send them an offering and see whether they will offer it on the altar. So he sent with him a fine calf. While on the way, he made a blemish on its upper lip, or as some say, on the white of its eye, in a place where Jews count it a blemish, but they do not. The rabbis were inclined to offer it in order not to offend the government. Said Rabbi Zachariah ben Abkulas to them. They then proposed to kill Bar Kamza so that he should not go and inform against them. Is one who makes a blemish on consecrated animals to be put to death? Rabbi. Yohanan thereupon remarked, Through the scrupulousness of Rabbi Zachariah ben Abkulas, our house has been destroyed, our temple burnt, and we ourselves exiled from our land.
the take-home message of the Kamsa and Bar Kamsa story was that the temple was destroyed because of gratuitous violence. Sinat Chinam. Now, that's, it, when you think about it, it's, it, it's, a, it's an incredibly strong statement on an ethical level. Hatred does create social structure. Or social stru- a certain social structure does promote groundless hatred. And that humiliation was so wrong that it was a bad way to insist on justice, on the host justice. But there was a way to insist on justice by accepting payment, but humiliating him in public was too much. It's so bad that people who do this, at least they do to the sages, get this terrible punishment uh, in the afterlife. That's what happens with rage. Rage flies out of control. And that's what happens with humiliation and embarrassment. It is important to understand that uh, one of the contexts of the story is how, what a powerful force humiliation and embarrassment is. The Jews have all along tried to, in effect, blame themselves for everything, uh, which is a nice moral stance. It allows you to look at what your role in everything is. And after all, what is more important than your own role? whether as an individual or as a people. They're looking at this one story and saying this one story is a, is a microcosm of just Jews unable to get along. Unable to get along meant ultimately political disaster because they couldn't unify. I think that, that's, that's the specific Sinat Chinam they're talking about. And the Romans in the, uh, in the later stories were vicious uh, imperialistic regimes. Whether we could have done anything that would have allowed us to survive as, an, as a country as well as, as a nation uh, is a good question. If we ask it seriously historically, we may not be able to come up with an answer. If you wanted to make lessons out of Jewish history, this is an unusual lesson to take away. It would be like somebody today saying, September 11th happened because of gratuitous hatred. In this kind of legalistic um, uh, position that the rabbis takes and which um, saves the life of, of Bar Kamza is, is, is not the right kind of deliberative, reflective, calm, rational approach. Then Abkulas himself, what was his scrupulousness? When, um, when the, 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 offering, uh, the offering for sacrifice is brought, the animal is brought, and it has this blemish, he insists on not taking it to the altar because of this blemish, even though it's a minor blemish, even though it's a blemish that people may not even know about if they're not going to make a fuss about it. But he says, no, 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 we can't do this. And they say, okay, so, you know, let's kill the man. He said, what? Kill the man? You can't kill him, it's unjust, because what did he do? Just put a blemish on the animal property. And, therefore, and he leaves everything open. He doesn't let them do anything in this sort of stalemate. It's a, it is being... St- small-minded in the sense that you are looking at the rules. You are not looking ahead of the larger consequences, but you, you, are, you are taking the rules too literally. Rav Zechariah is too meek in his application of Torah and therefore lets Bar Kamsa live when he could have sentenced him to death. The proper and rational thing would have been to bypass him and to talk to the Romans okay, and not accept this decision. Okay? So the word there is scrupulousness, but the Hebrew seems to be anavah because of the humility. So he doesn't feel arrogant enough to change the law. 
And then the translator here sort of changes it to scrupulousness, like he's so scrupulous, almost implying like he's a zealot. But in the Hebrew, it's not so much that he's a zealot, that he's humble. I mean, he's going to follow the law because he's not so arrogant that he's going to change the law. That Bar Kamsa really gets under my skin every time I hear this story. I mean, the guy's just such a jerk to me. I mean, here he is, he's accused of telling tales about the host, and instead of you know, apologizing for it, instead of, or at least offering an explanation, you know, he proceeds to change the subject and instead tries to buy his way into the party. Now first, by not directly, assess, by not directly addressing the host's accusation, he all but admits his guilt. And second, and even worse, he has the gall to try to solve a deep-rooted problem with a superficial means. And this is the ultimate insult, and it really puts the host in a tough position. On the surface, by kicking Bar Kamsa out of the party, he's the one who looks like a jerk. So, although I understand why the host kicked him out of the party, if it were me, I would have let him stay because I wouldn't let Bar Kamsa get the satisfaction of making me look like a jerk at my own party. However, I definitely wouldn't forgive him without an apology because... Obviously, somebody like Barkamsa would take advantage of such unconditional forgiveness. So I, went, I, don't want to, I don't want to send him the message that he can just walk all over me. And second, and probably more importantly, I definitely would not let him pay for the party. Because, again, if I let him pay for the party, it, you know, it, it lessens the gravity of the situation. Um, it sends him the wrong message that this, this problem can be solved with money. And I think that's the wrong message you want to send. So, in short... I would let him stay, but I wouldn't let him pay. The problem with this situation is you simply can't put all the blame on Bar Kamsa. Um, if you look, the host makes claims about him speaking against him in the past, but we, we don't know what exactly was said. We don't know if perhaps maybe this host might have initiated this confrontation in the first place. Bar Kamsa is obviously not somebody that's well-liked or maybe not even well-respected by the Jewish community at that time, as evidenced by the fact that the rabbis didn't stand up for him when he was kicked out of the party. In this situation, it's unfortunate that he was mistakenly invited to this party, but once he's already there, is it more noble to be confrontational and to boot him out after he's already offered to pay for his own share of the food, which to me is not trying to slap the, other, the host in the face. He's just simply saying, look, this is a situation that neither of us really likes, but I don't want to get kicked out of this party and be humiliated because if we look within the context of the time, feasts and parties were a very important in this social order of things. You knew your place in society based off of where you sat around the feast. And for him to be kicked out in front of every, all the important people there would be completely humiliating to him. So you can't blame Bar Kamsa for feeling upset at the end of this. It's not good to be vengeful, but at the same time, the host was confrontational when he didn't need to be. I don't think this is about placing blame or who is right or wrong, but I think it is about a situation that both parties should recognize that this is a chance to move it forward and progress and realize that the past cannot be changed and that it's done, but that the present can persist and people can grow. And in terms of Bar Kamsa offering money to pay his way into the party, we don't know that his intention was bad and was to insult the host, but we can guess that perhaps that's the only way he's ever learned how to negotiate or communicate, and I think that really needs to be considered. And somebody that would spread lies about a person probably lacks confidence and self-worth. And so this is a chance for the host to inspire other people 
to act in a similar way by allowing him to stay and not forgiving him, but recognizing, you know, to move forward, not condoning his behavior. And um, instead, he kicks him out and embarrasses him. And I think that humiliation can make people act really irrationally in order to switch the focus from themselves to something else. And that's really where it went wrong. So it could have been diffused right there. If we look at situations where somebody is socially awkward, somebody doesn't know how to act around people, it's often the case where it's not necessarily that person's fault, but it's also the people's fault who, who don't take that, um, give them, lend them a hand and just say, okay, I notice that you don't know how to act, that you take everything personally, and that's okay because that's not your fault. Maybe you were raised badly, maybe. See, Steve, I think, uh, you know, Barkamsa is the one who has to make, you know, make the first step. I think the host, I mean, we don't know, but I mean, I'm guessing that he'd be willing to, to listen to the guy if he at least, you know, just gave him some sort of explanation. He doesn't give him an, he does, definitely doesn't apologize, and he doesn't, doesn't even give an, you know, yeah, sorry about talking about you behind your back like that, or whatever he did. I mean, to me, it just admits his guilt, and it just, to say that right away, just to go right into, hey, you know what? Let me let me pay for everything here. Like it kind of, it totally cheapens the problem, and it's really the timing of when he did it. I mean, it's just like to to offer money like right there instead of you know. Well, I'm not going to apologize. I'm not even going to explain myself because obviously you know I'm a jerk and I I was talking about you behind your back and I'm not even going to apologize for that. But you know what? I'm rich, so why don't you let me stay and I'll, I'll pay for everything. I, I just think that's so insulting. I mean, I hear what you guys are saying about you know that he's you know he's obviously got problems and. Yeah, he does, you know, but it's, it's, I just don't think, I think you're being harsh on the host to like, to try to defend Bar Kamsa in this situation. But the host is in a position of influence and he has the power to really turn the situation around. Bar Kamsa is just being put in front of everybody. I guess if my enemy showed up at my party and wanted to pay for everything, I, I'd probably take him up on it. <laughs> but, you know, in this, in this situation, in this situation, it's just, I mean, I just, I don't see how you, how you can even think to let Bar Kamsa off the hook here. I just, I just don't, you know, it's, it's my opinion. Sent against them, Nero, the Caesar. As he was coming, he shot an arrow toward the east. And it fell in Jerusalem. He then shot one toward the west. And it fell in Jerusalem. He shot toward all four points of the compass and each time it fell in
he said to a certain boy. Repeat to me the last verse of scripture you have learned. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. The Holy One, blessed be he, desires to lay waste his house and to lay the blame on me. So he ran away and became a proselyte, and Rabbi Meyer was descended from him. He then sent against them Vespasian the Caesar, who came and besieged Jerusalem for three years. There were in it three men of great wealth. These men were in the position to keep the city for 21 years. The Burioni were then in the city. The rabbis said to them, And make peace with the Romans. They would not let them, but on the contrary said, Let us go out and fight them. You will not succeed. They then rose up and burnt the stores of wheat and barley, so that a famine ensued. Abba Sikra, the head of the Birioni in Jerusalem, was the son of the sister of Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai. The latter sent to him, saying, Come to visit me privately. How long are you going to carry on in this way and kill all the people with starvation? What can I do? If I say a word to them, they will kill me. Devise some plan for me to escape. Perhaps I shall be able to save a little. Pretend to be ill, and let everyone come to inquire about you. Bring something evil-smelling and put it by you, so that they will say you are dead. Let then your disciples get under your bed, but no others, so that they shall not notice that you are still light, since they know that a living being is lighter than a corpse. When they reached the door, some men wanted to put a lance through the beer. Shall the Romans say they have pierced their master? They wanted to give it a push. Shall they say they have pushed their master? They opened a town gate for him 
and he got out. So you've got th actually three stories in, in this, on, these, on these couple of pages about cultural misunderstandings between an occupier and the occupied people, which leads to utter total destruction. And I think that's a very important crux to the story. Josephus presents an account, and this gets into the interpretation, um, where the revolt starts off with a moderate leadership that really wanted to make peace, who were then overthrown by the more radical groups after a year, and there was uh, um, a process of radicalization. I think Ruth Weiss, in some ways, despises Rabbi Yochanan because of this, because he's, he's making an accommodation, and he should really be fighting. You know, he should really go back with the zealots and fight for his homeland. Uh, war does have to be fought zealously. Uh, the, the part of this Talmudic piece does make that clear, and I don't think that's much emphasized in the discussion of this piece. Uh, my sense is that um, he does recognize that it's a lost cause and that the zealots have gone crazy, and I think it's a powerful moment in the story when they start burning food. They went out of their way to destroy years of supplies, right? And surely doing that is not in their naive best interest. The groups that carry out sacrifices, religious zealots, people from communes, members of gangs where there's an upfront sacrifice or upfront signal of commitment, and tend to be better at coordinated violence because they know that the members aren't, are not going to defect. It's clear to me that, that a lot of Judeans did not support the revolt. The, the major cities in the Galilee surrendered without a fight. You're reading in the Talmud itself that it, it was partly the Jewish rebels that were causing the siege because they were burning food. That, that seems like an act of, of, of real nihilism. Contemporary cases, we think that what makes groups turn violent is political opportunity. There's a, there's a strategic element here about what the biryani did that seems just a little bit more subtle and also effective. There are other um, elements in the story which are very, very hard to understand unless you accept that these people are, have, a, have an, have an ir, almost irrational uh, arousal of, of emotional excitement. It was their food. They could have had access to it. They threw it away. On the other hand, it served to change the strategic landscape enough so that they could get something that they wanted, which was an immediate battle. There's always a range of behaviors that you can take if you're fighting for something. Um, the most zealous is not necessarily the one that's going to win the best outcome. Had they been really, really thoughtful, rational, and calculative, uh, they would have behaved differently. They would have tried to settle with the Romans. They would have tried to somehow uh, compromise, and they didn't do that. There's a lot of emotions and passions flying about, and uh, it appears that the decisions being made by the characters are, in fact, a result of these emotions and passions. It seems like the zealots are angry, so they want to go to war. It seems like the rabbis are trying to be conservative, so they don't want to go to war. But when you look into it, a lot of the decisions can be, in fact, explained rationally. And um, that's what I want to talk about. Um, in particular, a way that we can prove that these decisions were made rationally is attributing the situation, the escape, but with the zealots and the rabbis as a normal form game. 
uh, normal form game is a tool of game theory. And with these two players that we have, the type of normal form game that we have is a two-player, two-choice, non-cooperative game. And we can make that more clear with this diagram right here. Um, on the top, you'll see you have the zealot's choice to either push for peace by staying within the city or push for war by going outside of the city and fighting with the Roman forces. And on the side, you see same thing with their abbot. They can push for peace or push for war. So um, if that's not clear, the, the rows are the rabbi's choices and the columns are the zealous choices. The numbers, the numbers on the lower left uh, represent the rabbi's choice. Uh, the, the numbers one through four represent their preference of choice. So for example, if it was a one, that would be their most desired choice. If it was a four, that would be their least desired choice. And similarly, the numbers on the upper right of each cell would be the zealot's choice. And by making assertions and predictions, we can start to deduce what exactly was the best choice for each and prove that the decision that they ultimately reached was, in fact, rational. So the first claim that we're going to make, uh, you see there, is that the zealots do not want peace when the rabbis preach war. Um, what this means is you have to realize that the zealots are a young, kind of ag aggressive, rebellious group of individuals. Uh, in the converse, the rabbis are very conservative. They're models for, for the community. They're spiritual men. They're older. So if the rabbis wanted war and the zealots wanted peace, that's going to make the zealots look bad because it's going to call into question their status. It's going to make them look soft. So this would be the worst possible outcome for the zealots. So that's why there's a number four right there, because that that would be their least desired. Um, as far as their most desired outcome, that would be for everybody to fight. We already know that the zealots want to fight. They burn the stores of, of food. They, they force the city to fight. So if they have the support of the rabbis, that's only going to make it easier for them. They're going to be able to get the rest of that, um, the rest of the people that are behind the rabbis. So a situation in which both parties want war, which is signified by the, the war war right there in, in the parentheses, that would be the best possible situation for the zealots. So that's the number one. So that's why you see the number one right there. Uh, next, we'll move on to the rabbis. The rabbis do not want to fight without the zealots. In other words, this would be the worst possible situation for the rabbis, and that would be if the rabbis... I'm sorry, if the rabbis wanted war and the zealots wanted peace. This would make the rabbis look extremely aggressive because here we have this, these rebellious zealots who want to go to peace, who want peace, but the rabbis want war, that doesn't really make sense. So that would be the worst possible outcome for them. So that would be number four. The best possible outcome for the rabbis is for everybody to make peace. We already know that they want to make peace. They told the zealots so. They said, don't, don't go fight. You're not going to be successful. But if they had the zealots support in that, and both parties wanted to make peace, then that's only going to improve their chances for peace. So that would be a number one. Um, zealots will fight despite the rabbis' disapproval. We know that the zealots, we know that the rabbis want peace because they said so. The zealots could have, using the signal, the zealots could have decided, all right, well, maybe we should join them. But they didn't. They decided to fight instead. So they must prefer that. That must be a better outcome for them. It must rank higher than if they joined the rabbis' quest for peace. And the last step is that the rabbis will pe preach peace while the zealots wage war. The rabbis know that the zealots want to wage war. That was pretty obvious when they burned all the food and forced everybody to yet they still, they still claim that, that they should stay and that, and that everybody should try and have peace. Um, so, in other words, they, they must have preferred that to joining the zealots in their quest for war. 
So now we have our completed diagram, um, and you can see the the uh, situation in the upper right corner in which the rabbis preach peace and the zealots go to war is our equilibrium. It's called a Nash equilibrium, and this is when no player has a better alternative uh, unilaterally. Without the choices, without affecting the choices of the other player, that's the best possible choice for them, and that is in, in fact the outcome that happens in the story. So that's why I think that this can be explained rationally, and is in fact best explained rationally, and and actually is not due to the emotions of the characters in the story. Okay, well, that was nice, but I had a slightly different interpretation of this part of the story. Um, to me, the Zealots based their decisions purely out of emotion, particularly anger, and that anger led to extreme selfishness. Their goals were to preserve their city and their temple, but these are rational choices to try and obtain these goals. I don't understand how burning your, not only your food source, but the food source of women and children could be rational in any way. Also, if they burn their own food source, I don't know how they planned on fighting the Romans if they're all starved to death. And also choosing to fight the Romans in the first place, who had the most powerful army spreading over three continents, uh, would be rational in any way, shape, or form. And if they thought they were going to win, they definitely had another thing coming. I do see the rationality that Patrick is talking about in this situation, but I think it's important to look at the ulterior motives of both parties involved. The Zealots, the Birioni were uh, well-to-do. They had food, that obviously, to keep the city for 21 years. So one of the quotes was uh, th that um, political power is what drives people to start revolutions like this. And the Birioni probably wanted political power of their own because they were being controlled by the Romans at this time. And then the rabbis, they had it good at the time. They, they had some wealth, they were looked up to, and the Romans, for the most part, somewhat, they'd left them alone. So, of course, the rabbis would want peace, and of course, the zealots would want war. But the real question is, what did the common people of Jerusalem want at that time? And it seems as though neither party was really concerned with that. They, they all had their own ideas of what was best to do. When Rabbi Ben Zakkai reached the Romans, he said, Peace to you, O king! Peace to you, O king! Your life is forfeit on two counts. One, because I am not a king. You call me a king. Emma, why did you not come to me before now? As for your saying that you are not a king, in truth, you are a king. Since if you were not a king, Jerusalem would not be delivered into your hand, as it is written. And Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Mighty one is applied only to a king, as it is written. And the mighty ones shall be of themselves.
And Lebanon refers to the sanctuary, as it says. This could be mountain Lebanon. As for your question, why, if you are a king, I did not come to you till now. The answer is that the Birioni among us did not let me. A serpent is wound. Would they not, not break the jar? Get rid of the serpent. Jarvani around which the serpent is wound. Would they not break the jar to get rid of the serpent? If there is a jar of honey round which a serpent is wound, would they not break the jar? could give no answer. Rabbi Yosef, or as some say, Rabbi Akiba, applied to him the verse. God turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish. He ought to have said to him, we take a pair of tongs and grip the snake and kill it. And leave the jar and leave the jar and leave the jar intact. We take a pair of tongs and grip the snake and kill it. And leave the jar and leave the jar and leave the jar intact. And grip the snake and kill it. And leave the jar and leave the jar. And leave the jar intact. We take a pair of tongs. And grip the snake and kill it. And leave the jar and leave the jar and leave the jar intact. And leave the jar. And leave the jar intact. Leave the jar. We take a pair of tongs and grill the, the snake and kill it. Leave the jar. And leave the jar intact. At this point, a messenger came to him from Rome, saying, 
Up! For the emperor is dead, and the notables of Rome have decided to make you head of state, he said to Rabbi Yohanan, or some say Rabbi Ben Zakkai. Seeing that you are so wise, why did you not come to me till now? Have I not told you? I too have told you. I am now going and will send someone to take my place. You can, however, make a request of me and I will grant it. Give me Abner and its wise men. Make a request. And the family chain. And I will grant it. Of Rabban Gamaliel. Request to me. And physicians to heal. Rabban Zadok. And I will grant it. Rabbi Yosef, or some say Rabbi Akiba, applied to him the verse. God turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish. He ought to have said to him, Let the Jews off this time. He, however, thought that so much he would not grant, and so even a little would not be saved. first one I'll call the political interpretation, which sees the revolt as a war of national liberation against an imperialist colonialist power, namely the Roman Empire, which controlled the country. And on this view, the Judeans were rebelling to win their independence, uh, to regain their, their independence as they had held uh, decades earlier. In the Hanukkah story, as we get it, the zealots win, of course, it's always the winners who write the history. From the point of view of the Talmud, the, the, the rabbis of the Talmud never liked the Hasmoneans. I mean, they resisted celebrations of Hasmonean victories. They, they resisted referring to Hanukkah as the festival of the Hasmoneans. I mean, they, they come up with a whole different perspective. So they don't like the Hasmoneans, and they don't like the zealots in, in Jerusalem. There's a big story about how Rabban uh, Yohanan ben Zakkai manages to get out of the city, and he meets Vespasian, and... Vespasian is angry at him for, for not fighting the Biryuni. The second interpretation is, sees it as either primarily or also as a civil war within Judean society. So, so, so for instance, what, one thing that sociologists know very well is that the trust is not something that exists in society, but which exists within social networks. So you can have very high level of trust in, um, within groups, while tremendous amount of mistrust across groups that creates a huge devastation. So 
Now, you can get this out of Josephus, but Josephus, who sees himself as part of the establishment, when he calls the rebels social revolutionaries and anti-establishment, for him, that's denigrating them. At the same corruption that Jesus was so concerned about, you know, around the year zero, mm -hmm. um, the Pharisees were quite concerned about beforehand. And, in fact, it really wasn't a religion that served the common man particularly well. I mean, who could afford to, you know, to bring calves for sacrifice? One might think, we don't have great evidence on this, but one might think that this is a great religion for the wealthy. So in this view, Jewish society is divided between the establishment, which cooperated with the Romans, which collaborated with the Romans, and which benefited from the status quo, and they see the rebels as representing the downtrodden Judean society who suffered from oppression, not just by the Romans, by, but by oppression by their own established leadership, which was collaborating with the Romans. Well, the rabbis in some ways wanted to accommodate the Romans. It seemed like they did. That's the story of Rabbi Yochanan later. So they did feel they could deal with the Romans. And, they, you know, they lived with the Romans. Uh, they lived well with the Romans for, for hundreds of years. I think it's very difficult to judge. I mean, then we have to go into all these kind of quasi-historical speculations about what motives uh, Yohanan ben Zakai had. Perhaps he thought that you know, Jerusalem is too corrupt anyway. Perhaps it's good to destroy Jerusalem, so long as he gets the Avliani sentence. Perhaps he thought, more realistically, that that's the most he could expect to get from, from the emperor. You have this dominant relationship, and maybe here's the prisoner's dilemma, in the sense that um, it might be, be better to use minimal force and have uh, a cooperative population than to use maximal force and have an uncooperative population. The story of Bar Hamza is extremely religious in nature. Yeah, I find it really odd that God only appears at the end of the story, and he plays a really <coughs> small role. Uh, God failed to save his own people from a terrible fate, and failed to stop the destruction of a temple that was dedicated to him. Um, this really started making me think about who God is, and a traditional description of God usually describes him as all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving. But these traditional concepts really fail in the face of logical reasoning due to the presence of evil in the world. Basically, how can a perfect God exist while evil exists as well? Um, I determined that there are three possibilities on the nature of God, as you can see on the screen. Uh, the first one would be that God could be all-powerful, but not good. In other words, God has the ability to do something about evil, um, but chooses not to. Secondly, God could not be all-powerful, but good. And evil exists because God can't stop it or really do anything about it. And lastly, God could be all-powerful and good, but then evil wouldn't exist. And what may seem like evil is actually for the greater good. It could reflect divine punishment or somehow a necessity for God's final plan. Uh, next, we have a diagram to demonstrate the concepts that I just discussed. Um... God may not be all three of these things at the same time, uh, because if he was all-powerful, he would then be all-knowing, and if he was good, then he could and would eliminate all evil completely, but obviously that hasn't happened. Um, 
Lastly, in my opinion, I determined that God is not all-powerful, but infinitely good. And during man's creation, God bestowed upon us a small amount of his power, which we experience today as free will. Your diagram was nice, but who are we to say what God is or isn't? Does God exist even? And if God does exist, if he is real to a people, then what, if those people believe that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, then he must be those things. But the real question is, in the time, if you look back in this time, the Jewish people had a covenant with God where if they abided by his laws and they followed him, then God would do his part in turn to better his people and to take care of them. And we see in this time that it's really a gray area of who really are his people. Are they the rabbis who skipped town and abandoned the innocent people of Jerusalem? Or are they the zealots who burned the food supplies and said, we're all going to war? If you look, you say, where was God when this all happened? Vespasian said, offered, I will, give you, I will grant you your wish if you ask of it. Was that not God giving them the opportunity to say, save us? If you, if you look and say that, okay, this had to be a fight, there was 21 years' worth of food that they could have defended the city, stayed within its walls, and just kept the Romans out and tired them out. After 21 years, are they going to keep conquesting? Are they that much of warmongers? I don't think so. I think God was right there with his people, but they were blind to see it. I actually didn't see God's presence at all in the story. And um, you're talking about the covenant that God may have had with his people, I mean, did he have a covenant with the rabbis, the zealots, the common Jews? I mean, to me, it's obvious that he didn't have a covenant with any of them because he let them, he let their, their city be destroyed as well as their temple. Many people died, and this caused the diaspora, which obviously we're still dealing with issues of something that happened 2,000 years ago today, and I just failed to see God's presence in any of this. How did the physicians heal Rabbi Zadok? The first day, they let him drink water in which Bran had been soaked. On the next day, water in which there had been coarse meal. On the next day, in which there had been flour, so that his stomach expanded little by little. Vespasian sent Titus, who said, Where is their God, the rock in whom they trusted? This was the wicked Titus, who blasphemed and insulted heaven. What did he do? He took a harlot by the hand and entered the Holy of Holies. and spread out a scroll of the law. And committed a sin on it. He then took a sword and slashed the curtain.
Miraculously, blood spurt out, and he thought that he had slain himself, as it says. Thine adversaries have roared in the midst of thine assembly. They have set up ensigns for signs. Abahanan said, Who is a mighty wine like unto thee, O Jah? Who is like thee, mighty in self-restraint, that thou didst hear the blaspheming and insults of that wicked man and keep silent? Titus brought all the vessels of the sanctuary and then put them on board ship to go and triumph with them in the city. And with all I saw the wicked buried. Read not Kiburim buried, but Kibbutzim collected. And they that come to the grave. And they that had done right went away. And were forgotten. From the holy place. And were forgotten in the city. Some say that Kebarim can be retained, because even things that were buried were disclosed to them. A gale sprang up at sea, which threatened to wreck them. Apparently the power of God of these people is only over water. When Pharaoh came, he drowned him in water. When Sisera came, he drowned him in water. He is also trying to drown me. In water. If he is really mighty. Let him come up on the dry land and fight with me. A voice from heaven came forth saying, Sinner, 
son of sinner, descendant of Esau the sinner. I have a tiny creature in my world called a gnat. Go up on the dry land and make war with it. When he landed, the gnat came and entered his nose, and it knocked against his brain for seven years. One day, as he was passing a blacksmith's, it heard the noise of the hammer and stopped. This went on for thirty days, but then the creature got used to it. It has been taught. And when he died, they split open his skull and found there something like a sparrow, two sailors in wait. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.